Welcome everybody to the Bonavera Institute of Human Rights. Very, very excited to have you here. My name is Leora Lazarus. I'm head of research here and also a member of the law faculty um, and write a little bit in the area of security and human rights. Um, we're very, very happy to welcome Lee Day here today and to welcome this collaboration between the Institute and Lee Day to discuss this groundbreaking or important case in the story of holding um, um, military operations to account in the human rights field. I'm not going to spend a long time extemporating myself. My job is to chair a successful panel, which has already um, been marked by the fact that Lawrence Cawthorn Hill is ill and unable to attend today. And we have the marvelous uh, Professor Dapo Akande standing in at 15 minutes notice um, to, to give us his thoughts. Um, and I persuaded him that he had things to say. So that is, that is excellent. Um, we will start the panel today with the Reverend Nicholas Mercer, of, um, who needs very little introduction. Um, and we will then move on to get a fuller description of the case from Melanie. And then by that stage, I think Dapo will have a stronger sense of what it is he would like to say on this question. But I can assure you that Dapo knows many things and will be saying some very interesting things on these questions. So if I can call on Nicholas Mercer to start us off. Thank you very much. Good morning and thank you very much for the invitation to come and speak today. Uh, thank you to the Bonavera Institute, thank you to Lee Day, and thank you for re to Redress very kindly printing off the judgment for me because it would have overwhelmed the parish if I tried to print this judgment off such as the thoroughness of Lord Justice Leggett. So I am really setting the context I hope for today's uh, conference. Um, 16 years ago to this day I was in Kuwait in Camp Commando with the Americans as part of the first divisional headquarters making preparations for the forthcoming invasion of Iraq. Little did I imagine that 16 years later uh, I would be sitting here in a conference in Oxford discussing some of the subsequent litigation that flowed from it. Uh, I don't want to be too controversial too early on, but it feels a bit like Brexit. We were rushed into a war. We were rushed into a war without proper planning and the result was ensuing chaos and litigation. I can't help thinking about it every time with this deadline of March the, whatever it is, 29th approaches. For us, we knew an invasion was imminent. Um, we didn't even know we were going to invade from the south of Iraq until the beginning of January 2003. We were going to be a fixing position in the north, and so as not to be a combat indicator for the enemy, we were all sent away on holiday so they didn't realize that leave, otherwise they'd have seen that leave was canceled. So to keep that air of normality, we did a, a sort of leave faint as well. I got back early to start working on the preparations for the invasion, but we had little or no time. And you can see what happens when you do that as a nation. I was a command legal advisor at the time. That meant I was a senior lawyer for the First Armoured Division, the senior lawyer in theatre. I'm now a vicar. Uh, I haven't practice law for seven years, so I just want a bit of latitude if I stumble into anything clumsily, because actually without that day-to-day -day legal practice, 
you do, I think, lose some of your acumen, but I hope I can give you some useful backgrounds and insights into Lord Justice Leggett's, is that the correct term? I don't know, he's been promoted since then, but anyhow, forgive me if I've got that wrong, but some insights into how we saw it, why we made the decisions we did, and what it is like to be a battlefield lawyer. One person here has already said to me they'd like to join the army, and I want them to see what give them a flavour of what battlefield law looks like, because we all practice law in our various fields, I think, presuming that, either as you know, legal practice or as an NGO or as an academic, but battlefield lawyers also have their place too, and it's a very different complexion to the practice of law. But Telic One was a legal test like no other. Um, we engaged all four Geneva Conventions. Before that, we'd only really triggered one to three. It was the first time we'd used the Protocol of 77 and the first time that in, uh, international human rights law began to intrude on the debate. Naturally, the law of armed conflict was in its infancy in the British Army. It was almost like a reserve occupation. Everyone has a battlefield role in the Army. So I, when I first joined the Army in 91, I met a dentist, and she said, well, I, I said, do you do much dentistry in theatre? She said, no, I'm an anaesthetist. So, so, so she switched over, and just as we did courts-martial and administrative law, we would switch over to battlefield law when there was a military operation, so it wasn't our day-to-day -day practice either. But jurisprudence in the laws of war has developed substantially since 2003, and now we all have the benefit of hindsight and the fruits of 16 years of litigation. Anyhow, this is battlefield law, and the conditions are far from ideal. You work from a large tent or an armoured vehicle. You move approximately every 10 days. You're living in a tent in the desert. You carry a respirator and weapon with you at all times. You sleep with them in your sleeping bag. At times, we came under attack. So instead of going back for a good night's sleep, you were in a trench taking cover from enemy fire and then expected to go in and make your legal decisions as competently as you had, were expected to do in the, in the time leading up to that. It is not easy. There's no library of resources. All I had was Robertson Guelph. It was quite entertaining when I arrived at the division because I turned up to an exercise with my Robertson Guelph and sat down next to the commander and one old soldier said, in the old days, you used to have to bring a rifle on exercise. <laughs> there is the added complication of being on coalition operations. You were working with other nations, in this case, the United States. That's not easy. You've only got to look at the administration at the moment and see how decisions are made. I'm not saying it was all tainted with Trump, but we were in the Bush era. American lawyers had worked the process themselves, come to decisions, hadn't bothered to consult. And it was really hard to row back from that. I think it was only out of politeness and courtesy and wanting to keep us on board that they even bothered to listen to what we had to say uh, in legal meetings. Uh, and there were potential legal consequences for all of us, which I'll come on to, because it bears some, it's of some importance when it comes to prisoners. But they would make decisions unilaterally, and we would then had to find out even what they were. And this was the first time that a war was fought with PGHQ in the command structure. So again, this is a really important piece in that in the first Gulf War, the legal chain of command was literally, I would, I would be commander legal, I would simply go back to headquarters, legal headquarters in the army, and they would give me a decision on whatever I was flagging up to them. 
in this war, PGHQ had come into being in 1997, which meant that the government were now involved in the legal making process. And because of the turf war that goes on in the command structure, had imposed themselves of a, at a higher rank status to the military lawyers on the battlefield. So everything had to have a government makeover before you were allowed to implement a decision. That was not easy. And I don't think we accepted very little of what advice they had to give to us, not least because some of them got chopped over from other departments. And whether, whereas I think in one case they'd be doing weights and measures, so checking whether the apples and pears in the markets were of the right weight, were moved over to battlefield law and then outranked us. Imagine the implications for that in a law firm. So I think that's an important element that we need to be aware of because that has some impact on the decisions we made or tried to make. So the Alcerin judgment in all its enormity, I mean, I played a small part in that I gave evidence for a day largely to stop the MOD trying to take an avenue and, and cut off different avenues of retreat. Uh, but it's based heavily on violations of the European Convention on Human Rights. Uh, and at the time of Telic 1, the application of the Human Rights Act on the battlefield was contested legal territory. Uh, this was arguably the single most contentious issue in the Iraq War. I'd followed the case of Bankovic quite closely because I was in Heidelberg at the time of Bankovic and would go across to Strasbourg. And I knew Francoise Hampson because we were speaking at an ecclesiastical law conference together. I just not. Uh, and so she would take me through the, the various legal arguments as to why human rights law might appear, appear on the battlefield. Um, but obviously, Bankovic was decided against the applicants. But of course, the legal reasoning underlying that was potentially applicable. If we were in occupation, we had jurisdiction. And if we had jurisdiction, ergo, the Human Rights Act might apply. So what to do in those circumstances? So I went for a preliminary meeting with PGHQ in January 2003 and raised the Human Rights Act and its applicability. And that was just left lying on the table. They said they'd get back to us on that and, of course, never did. We then had this problem on operations. Did the Human Rights Act apply? I discussed it with the GOC First Armoured Division and said, look, we don't know post-Bankovic whether it will apply or not. But actually, the best thing to do on the battlefield is apply the highest possible legal standard. I was conscious that we could be under legal attack. It's called defensive law. And actually, if you take the moral high ground in war, it's immensely powerful. It is an operational enabler because your enemies see that when you capture someone, you treat them humanely and decently. And if you try and apply the highest standards, who could possibly criticise you? Well, I think the Alcerin judgment possibly does just that. Even establishing a review for prisoners was contentious. We wanted to set up a review system for detainees and internees. This is what the Ministry of Defence wrote to me when I suggested this. There is nothing in GC4 which requires us to review the detention of detainees internees. Whilst it might be appropriate for individuals locked up following a Saturday night in Brixton, they are not appropriate for detainees internees. I mean, the sarcasm and the casual way and the slightly racist way that this is presented is horrifying, but that's the sort of thing that you will be presented with. In other words, shut up, you're not reviewing it. Well, we just ignored that, but we we're ignoring an order. So yeah, we will review it, sorry. I've set one in process. Okay, and this is what we're doing. 
And we were absolutely right. We probably didn't get it right, but I think the thrust of what we tried to do got it right. And following Al Scaney of all of this, having been told that the Human Rights Act didn't apply and Lex Specialis ousted the Human Rights Act, then, of course, in the Court of Appeal in Al Scaney, the MOD <laughs> accepted that it did apply in detention. So having made that hullabaloo in 2003, they then roll over in litigation three years later. I hope, anyhow, that gives you some context into the environment in which we were working. So moving on to prisoners and status review. And again, I don't think enough emphasis has been given in Al-Saran to the military context in which we found ourselves. Uh, it was an enormous problem. I wrote a memo on the 24th of March, 2003. It was internal. This was advice to snipers on the Shat al-Basra as to who they could engage, uh, having been placed there by the commander of 7 Armour Brigade. Uh, there, and I started off by saying... There has been evidence that coalition forces have been engaged not only by Iraqi regular forces, but by persons wearing civilian clothing. So three days into the war, we don't get a regular war. We get a war in which people are in civilian dress. And if you've got a young soldier there with his rifle, sitting there, taking shots through the night, keep, making the enemy keep its head down, who can he shoot? And how, do I, how am I sure that he's confident to shoot the right person and not get into legal trouble? He's probably got a reading age of 11. It's really tough. I've got to have, give him certainty, and I've got to be legally <laughs> certain myself that he doesn't shoot the wrong person. On day seven of the war, I wrote this because I kept a diary. I went by helicopter with the GOC to Umm Qasar to see the PW collection area. Again, in a unique experience where I saw over 3,000 prisoners of war, all in different compounds, separated by strands of barbed wire. Very few were in uniform, but all had been captured in various battles over the last seven days. Some looked terrified, others defiant. It is days like this which make being a military law, lawyer so worthwhile. So we were presented with 3,000 prisoners. Think of the sheer volume of that. Think how difficult it is to run a conference with 42 of us, okay? 3,000 people, you've got to put up the barbed wire, the latrines, the feeding, the medical, the guarding, the shift patterns, the administration, the IT systems. It's, this is a really, really major task. It's fine sitting here in Oxford. Try doing it in the desert. Anyhow, the ROE which we had for Optelic One is still secret, and quite rightly so. However, it's cast very widely by the MOD. And the reason that for that is that it's based on, obviously, on Articles 4.1 and 4.2 of the Third Geneva Convention. And it reads, it reads as follows. Members of the armed forces of a party to the conflict, that's easy, and other volunteer corps, sorry, other uh, militias and other volunteers corps. So who were those militias? And who were those other volunteer corps? And it goes on in part two, members of other militias and members of other volunteer corps, including those of organised resistance movements. So your category of combatants is potentially huge. So we've got militias, members of volunteer corps, organised resistance movements in two parts. And someone had done a serious amount of research on who that might include. 
but the vast majority are in civilian clothes. So when it comes to determination, and that's your category of combatants, the people you can engage, there were raiding parties into Basra at night. You know, land rovers would go in and beat up headquarters and things of the Ba'ath Party. It's really difficult, because that's part of the command structure. But that's what we were dealing with. And of the, as I said, over 3,000 prisoners of war, most were in civilian clothing and claiming to be civilians, but had been captured in various battles, was my note. That's what I thought I was dealing with. And there was a potential for over 2,000 tribunals. And I just raised this question. Is this type of review possible in expeditionary warfare, which is, it's, is deliberately light and fast, and also in asymmetric warfare? The first Iraq war was fought on conventional lines. It was really NATO versus the Warsaw Pact. That was a catastrophic defeat for the Iraqis. This time they realised that's not going to work. We had intelligence people being told to change into civilian clothing. So status review. So we had a massive problem on our hands. We had to review potentially up to 2,000 prisoners. We anticipated 15,000, by the way. We were very pleased to have got away so lightly. But just think what 2,000 prisoners looks like in terms of review and review apparatus. We didn't have any specific Article 5 regulations. We just had Board of Inquiry regulations. And I found the Commandant of the Prisoner of War Camp after a phone call from my lawyer who I had embedded with them saying he's just chucking out 250 at a time because he can't feed them. So we stopped that and said, no, you've got to review them properly. I had 24 hours to sort that out. And we came up with the Article 5, Article 4 and a half reviews which we then went to Basra, to the ICRC in Basra, which they sent back to the ICRC headquarters in Geneva and approved. And on the green light from approval from <coughs> Geneva, we went ahead and implemented them the next day. And we used the test, if any doubt arises as to someone's status, then they stay as a prisoner of war because we saw that as protected status. We were protecting them. Some of the cases we'd looked at before, with, particularly in the light of the American um, suggestions for dealing with prisoners of war had shown cases in World War II where prisoners of war had been executed because they'd been left with senior members of their regiment and were being put to death because they were seen not to have fought to the bitter end. That was during the Second World War. So we didn't want prisoners of war to be executed by other people within their militias or the regular forces by virtue of having been captured. So we saw this as protected status. But Leggett says as follows, our approach was wrong. If Article 5 had been properly applied, the first question for the interviewing panel should have therefore have been to consider whether there was evidence that the individual had committed a belligerent act. If the answer was yes, it would have been right for the panel to proceed in accordance with the guidance given. But if the answer was no, and then so on and so forth, keeping the individual in detention was wrong. But I don't accept that approach, and I'll tell you why. Um, the first question, I think, is whether if a person is a combatant, it's irrelevant whether they've committed a belligerent act. You can get, just as I think one human rights blog has put on the issue of uniform, just because someone's in, not in uniform doesn't mean they're not a combatant. You can catch a combatant on the loo, in bed, in his pyjamas, 
you could catch him on day one of the war. He hadn't even got there. He's just coming along in his civilian clothes. He's still a combatant. He's still entitled to prisoner of war statement, status. It doesn't matter if they commit a belligerent act or not. And if an individual was a combatant, we don't have to show that he was fighting or not, just the way it is. Uh, and in any event, how could we know? When I set up the Article 4.5 tribunals, the Article 5 tribunals, I knew the Provost Marshal really well. So I had to investigate every single claim. So I set them off with 10 claims. Right, here's your first 10. Good luck. And I managed to get military police to do the investigations. I went back a week later thinking that was a decent amount of time to get this done and said, where have you got to, thinking we would be racing through them. We haven't determined anything yet. Well, why not, says I. Well, how do we get the evidence? The people we've interviewed say they come from the north of Iraq. Well, Saddam did that deliberately because he, had, he didn't want armed forces coming from a locality because he had an up uprising in Basra. So he would move troops around the place so he didn't get pockets of resistance to his regime. How does a policeman travel the whole length of the country in a war to determine their status? It's impossible. So I, I, you know, I was a prosecutor for many years. I had some sympathy with the collection of evidence. But it's, fine collect well, it's difficult enough collecting evidence in times of peace. On a battlefield, that is nigh on impossible. And then we get clobbered for time limits, reach of time limits later. There were other problems too. The Americans were the spearhead of the operation. In other words, the Americans headed up towards al Nazaria, And I knew that once they got across the bridge there and up to Baghdad, we were sort of safe, but we were called relief in place. In other words, we would be given pockets of prisoners. Here you are, 200 prisoners. Here you are, 20 prisoners. They'd be handed over from the Americans. That's fine, but they become our prisoners. Where do we get the evidence from? From your American colleagues. Uh, so that in itself is very difficult. Um, there's forced security issues. If I let someone out and he's a combatant by mistake, he can come and kill me. That's fine. That makes law very different from human rights law that we look at on a day-to-day -day basis. If we get it wrong, that could kill me or someone else. Well, which one of you here is prepared to take that risk? If you've got any doubt... You keep someone in. It's like a massive, great chess game. You know, we capture troops, plonk, protected status. You know, if you look at it like that, but we're dead. They could coordinate resistance. They could do an attack. They could bring intelligence, and so on and so forth. So from our perspective, this all looks very different. So anyhow, a few. And the other thing is the manpower bill for potential review of 2,000 people. You know, the British government can't even deal with asylum and immigration. You know, what are, how are we expected to cope with a load like that? How many people would you estimate for, lawyers would you estimate for, with that sort of, okay, would you estimate for with that sort of number? Do it. What would Lee Dern do, do if you wanted to deal with 2,000 tribunals? What would it look like? It would run to hundreds. We haven't even got 100 in the British Army. I've been given a, a, a five-minute warning already. Let me go through as quickly as I can. Just looking at the individual cases, first of all, Alcaran and Justice Leggett's assertion that he was wrongly identified as a combatant. Well, I think that's 
I've dealt with that already in that he doesn't have to be in civilian clothes to be, it doesn't have to be in uniform to be a combatant. That doesn't mean he's, a, he's not a combatant. I don't know what the records looked like when he arrived at the prisoner of war camp, but the only evidence there was, the Marines said they had a 15-hour battle for Abu <coughs> al-Kahid. Well, that's pretty good enough for me. I'm not going to get much more to go on than a battle for al-Kahid. I don't know. Where am I going to find the prisoners? Evidence as to who captured them. It's really difficult. Looking at the case of MRE and KSU, uh, bit I, I did a bit of work on this. Um, they found a weapon on the boat. They found the weapon was hidden. They found bullets on the boat. Well, I hear what they say about potentially protecting themselves against bandits, but there was a military ID card in MRE's pocket. It's commander legal. I'm never going to let him out in a million years. I'm amazed he got out. Not a hope of letting him out. It just wouldn't happen. Uh, and nor would I do with the other people on the boat. Um, and also this time frame. Justice Leggett says, at most, 10 days of their internment, that should have taken place within 10 days of their internment. Utterly unrealistic nonsense. It's simply impossible. And what about the other 2,000 that are sitting there waiting that no one's ever brought up? Well, I mean, fill your boots. But it is impossible to do that. Simply impossible. Just look at the manpower. Look at the resources that we had. Think about it from a battlefield perspective. It's simply not going to happen. Let me tell you what I was doing during those 10 days. The war begins on the 21st of March, okay? So I'm heavily involved in all the fighting that's going on. The first mention I have of irregular combatants is the 24th of March. I see it firsthand on the 28th. On the 29th of March, I've moved into a tomato field. So I'll move you to Huntingdon or Cudston, you can sit in a field and tell me what's going on in Oxford. Let's say you'd had civil disobedience in Oxford overnight and you've got 2,000 people locked up. Come off it, it's not going to happen. Remarkably, to our defence, we put in a review for all prisoners. Every, we put our Article 5 tribunals for all the prisoners of war who claimed civilian status. Every single criminal detainee who was detained, because we were now in occupation, so we were doing with law and order, was given legal representation and made submissions to me. And every single internee was reviewed at the 24-hour, 7-day and 28-day period. We were running four different categories of prisoners simultaneously, all with different legal regimes. And we did that with six people. We asked the Minister of Defence for all people. They said we ought to put up a submission paper. Yeah, right. So we fought as hard as we could. And sadly, if we hadn't fought so hard, we wouldn't be in court. Finally, prisoner abuse. If I may just finish on this note. Uh, I'm not a human rights lawyer seeking damages. I'm a lawyer who was also an eyewitness to prisoner abuse. I don't care what they say in the press. I saw it. I was there. I complained. I don't have any financial stake in this game. It happened, and it happened systematically, and it happened probably for the, all the time that we were in the theatre of operations, looking at the case of Al-Wahin, which is still, this is still going on in 2007. So from 2003 to 2007, prisoner abuse was going on. I'm not alone. The Red Cross saw it. There were officers within my headquarters, uh, Commandant of the Prisoner of War Camp, <coughs> CEO of the uh, Media Ops, who all saw it and complained to the GOC. It did happen. Forget the public narrative, this occurred, 
And we know from the good thing about al-Wahid is we know it's still going on in 2007. But the narrative of systematic prisoner abuse has been upended by al-Swedi. Uh, it appears that the residual cases, from what I've learned from Thomas Hansen, is that anything it, that has the pill tag on it is being put in the bin when it comes to proper investigation. It's tainted, therefore it's going in the bin. I don't accept that. Let me make it clear, because most of those interrogations are on film. So we've established, through various questions, that 720 interrogations are on film. So whatever the middleman and whatever the professional ethics in the middle, you just switch on play, and you can find out whether those cases are genuine or not. And as the head of IHAT, the previous head of IHAT, said that the tapes contained the good, the bad, and the ugly, I strongly suspect that those allegations made to the ICC are largely correct. And it may be that the MOD know that those allegations are correct, but would prefer to play the narrative of bent human rights lawyers, which plays so beautifully, everyone loves. Well, we don't, but you know what I mean. Uh, and Al-Saran is more depressing evidence of abuse, and it's remarkable that it's received little or no press coverage. So in conclusion, Al-Saran again goes against the grain of current the current public narrative in that, again, it establishes abuse by UK forces. This is a narrative that the public want to hear and one that they believe, that it's all bent lawyers. It never happened. It did. As a human rights blogger says, it has wider ramifications for claims in relation to detention, and that's certainly true. But for the reasons I've just given, I have severe reservations about the army being treated too harshly for the way we approach that. You know, against the grain, against the Ministry of Defence, we worked heaven, moved heaven and earth to review everyone in our detention and make sure that they were properly treated. And in anything, we've been victims of our own kindness and legal concern. But in broader terms, accountability and conflict has been avoided yet again for another generation. No one could have predicted this narrative. I did think with the Rome Statute, that people will be held to account and this would usher in a new era. Actually, we've seen a totally different complexion to all of this. However, I think as I said in an email to Thomas Hansen recently, it's not all bad. This is sort of the survivor's ball. Um, the threat of accountability has meant improvements in conduct in combat. There is now in 2016, I'm pleased to say, a far greater awareness of prisoners, their rights, and our obligations. The five techniques used in 2003 morphed into harshing and have now become direct challenge, judicially approved. And the treatment of the prisoner on the battlefield, I hope, is immeasurably better than it was 16 years ago. And I'm pleased to say that the battle over the Convention for Human Rights and its applicability on the battlefield has been established, and that's really important, particularly when our US counterparts are trying to argue that people are not combatants and therefore can be abused in Guantanamo. So forget not what it means to refuse someone combatant status. It's been a bloody time for lawyers. Uh, and lawyers have been attacked for trying to hold the state to account. And it's incumbent upon other lawyers and the legal profession not to fall in with the government, but to defend itself and our professional integrity. But there have been some notable victories and advances in the law. It's just that, just as the first troops 
over the trench are the ones likely to be killed or injured. The same, too, applies to lawyers. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much for that insight into the context of the battlefield, which is a perfect way to start the discussion today. I'm now going to call on um, Melanie Jacks of Lee Day to work through the Ulceran case. Melanie, before going to Lee Day, um, authored Armed Conflict and Displacement with Cambridge University Press um, and is now um, working. She's talking, she talked the talk and then she walked the walk. All right. So I'm going to uh, actually provide a whistle-stop tour of the Iraqi civilian litigation um, rather than focusing specifically on the Al-Saran judgment. Um, the um, Iraqi civilian litigation is a, a general description of uh, the many hundred claims that um, were brought in the English court by Lee Day on behalf of Iraqis alleging <laughs> Uh, unlawful detention and mistreatment by British armed forces between 2003 and 2009. And they were brought under two legal bases, the Human Rights Act and the Law of Tort. And it was common ground between the party that the law applicable to the tort claims would be um, the, is the law of Iraq. We initially, Lee Day was only really involved in specific individual cases. Um, our work really began in 2006 when we were instructed by a number of uh, um, Iraqis and, Ira and their families to, um, when they're in cases where there were extreme allegations of abuse. We acted, for instance, on behalf of the family of Baha Musa, who was the um, hotel receptionist who was beaten to death by. British Armed Forces while in their custody in September 2003. We also represented the victims of the uh, notorious Canberra Basket incident, uh, where Iraqi civilians were held on suspicion of looting at Canberra Basket and subjected to a number of physical and um, sexual abuse at the hand of uh, British soldiers. These photographs were taken by a British soldier and who then brought them to his local Photoshop to have developed and the staff at the shop called the police. Um, we also acted in, uh, on behalf of um, the um, Alamara, uh, victims of the Alamara incident, which was discovered by the News of the World some two years after the event. It concerned the beating and kicking of Iraqi teenagers by British soldiers during a, um, a riot in the town of Alamara. And it was, again, it was filmed by another soldier who was shouting on encouragement. So these cases, and all our cases really, are private law claims brought against the Ministry of Defence. They're not public law claims challenging um, Article 2, Article 3 investigations. 
and they're not criminal prosecutions against individual soldiers. They're solely against the Ministry of Defence. There were some quite unusual features to these early cases in that they, because they dealt with such um, extreme allegations of abuse and mistreatment, we also um, had there was the Minister of Defence gave uh, partial admissions of liability in their defences. And there were a significant amount of evidence that came out through court martial proceedings or RMP investigations in the case of uh, Bahamusa and the Canberra basket. And also um, video footage. We had video footage and we had photographs in the Canberra basket and Alamara incidents, which meant that there was quite a lot of evidence we could rely on. So these um, cases, the Bahamusa case resolved in 2008 and the other cases resolved shortly afterwards. They're all at a relatively early stage of civil proceedings. Um, then the Bahamusa inquiry, uh, which was established in August 2008, um, explored in more detail some of these um, allegations that had emerged in court martial proceedings, such as the use of the five interrogation techniques. The chairman of the inquiry, Sir William Gage, published his report in 2011 and found that Bahamusa had been subjected, subjected to violent and cowardly abuse and assault by British servicemen. And he also condemned corporate failure at the Ministry of Defence over the use of banned interrogation methods in Iraq. Sorry, I'm going quite fast, but it's quite a lot of many years of... Uh, litigation to go through. Um, after these initial claims resolved, we started uh, receiving instructions from other former Iraqi detainees who alleged that they'd been abused by British armed forces for varying dur durations and various degrees, varying degrees of assaults between 2003 and 2009. And uh, so during that period, in 2000, between 2009 and 2010, we were instructed by a further 300 claims uh, uh, Iraqi individuals. Um, so we progressed these claims through seeking disclosure from the defendant. And whilst all this was going on, on 7th of July 2011, we, uh, the Grand Chamber of the European Court of Human Rights handed out two significant decisions which would really signal a real shift in the way these human rights claims would be litigated. So there's the al um, uh, decision were also really importantly for us, the Al Jeda decision uh, was uh, it held that the the UK had clear obligations under um, Article Five to um, uh, protect the right of liberty um, and the right to liberty, and um, that their obligations were not displaced by the, by the UN Security Council resolution. 1546. So it set out a real framework for our detention claims. And uh, so shortly after that, we entered into um, confidential discussions with the Ministry of Defence. And over time, about 90% of these claims were resolved out of court. We took on another 600 claims in March 2013. And um, so when we arrived at the end of this kind of uh, this process, we um, started um, we issuing uh, not issuing sorry serving some of these statements of case on on, cer on certain amount of lead cases, 
and that's when um, the defendants as well served their defences and a number of generic issues came out um, well, were identified as quite clearly. Um, in February 2004, the, um, Mr Justice Leggett, as he was then, um, came, became the, the judge in charge of the case management and he ordered that these generic issues should be dealt with by way of preliminary issues. So it's like a, a series of hearings dealing with these points of principles these are very these are legal issues, which would then would be able to apply to the lead claims, and then from that we'd be able to assess the merits of the remaining case. Um, the, and then so so some of these preliminary issues were uh, oops sorry, how do I come back? Some of these issues were uh, went all the way to the Supreme Court. Uh, so there was quite a lot of them. I can't really go through all of them, but I just wanted to um, uh, mention the um, uh, displaced modification article uh, of Article 5, uh, preliminary issue, which went to the Supreme Court, and uh, which the Supreme Court handed down its judgment in January 2017. This came... Um, uh, initially, it was about whether Article 5 was displaced by the lex specialis of um, uh, international humanitarian law, um, in application of al -Jeda. but then it slightly morphed into a different argument when the, the Hassan judgment came out in the um, European Co uh, Court of Human Rights. Uh, the Grand Chamber came up with this, um, had in this new novel, model, uh, novel modification tests, which, meant that, which uh, meant that Article 5 now was capable of being modified by international humanitarian law in respect of detention of those who were held for security reasons in an international armed conflict. In January 17, 2017, the Supreme Court in Al-Wahid and uh, Mohammed um, held that this modification uh, test could be applicable in a non-international armed conflict. This meant that um, Article 5.1 about the legal basis for detention could be modified by um, the UNSCR 1546, and um, the detention would be lawful, the detention of uh, an individual would be lawful, provided that it was necessary for imperative reasons of security. Also, Article 5.4, which is about procedural safeguards, uh, could also be modified by international humanitarian law this time. So the detention would be lawful, provided that certain minimum standards um, which were derived from the Geneva Conventions, would be um, uh, uh, existed at the time. So these, this is a, this was the decision of the Supreme Court, but it didn't look into the facts of each case. The uh, the determination on the facts would have to be done by the judge um, at the trial. So this is what, um, in part, what the Al Saran judgment was about. There were also a number of other preliminary issues, um, which I won't go into, um, such as the application of the scope of the doctrine of Crown Act of State, the application of foreign limitation law to domestic proceedings, and in case of transfer cases, um, joint liability under Iraqi law. So, whilst all this was going on, in um, December 2014, the um, Al-Swedi inquiry report was published. 
this inquiry was set up to investigate um, allegations by a group of Iraqis who claimed that the British forces had murdered 20 Iraqis and uh, abused nine others uh, following uh, the Battle of Danny Boy in uh, May 2004. The report dismissed the most serious allegations of torture and murder, concluding that they were wholly without foundation and entirely the product of deliberate lies. But it still, the, the chairman still found that these nine uh, detainees had been mistreated and some of uh, this treatment amounted to ill treatment in breach of the Geneva Conventions. The MOD seized on these, the, the most serious um, um, conclusion and on the same day, Michael Falland, who was the uh, Defence Secretary, gave a statement at, um, to, in the House of Commons calling for measures to stop unscrupulous lawyers. This um, marked for us a radical shift in the rhetoric and a, we could see then a clear difference between the original outrage caused by the News of the World images, which we saw early on, and the now different tabloids headlines uh, from December 2014 uh, uh, onwards. So there was a new narrative that began to emerge at the time, um, and it was that of self-interested, ambulance-chasing lawyers, uh, persecuting um, soldiers. So in this tense context, and despite all these at uh, vitriolic attacks in the media, we work tirelessly towards uh, these, uh, our first full trial. Three cases were selected as test claims to be dealt with during the first round of trial in June 2016. And each case, the way they were selected is that each case emanating from a different phase of the conflict. So um, Mr. Al-Saran, who was captured and detained shortly after the commencement of the invasion, um, he was um, an, an inv the invasion case. He, um, he and other prisoners were um, claimed that they, once they were deterred at the temporary camp, they had been made to face uh, to lie face down on their back uh, whilst British <coughs> soldiers on the front, whilst British soldiers were running up and down over their back, and uh, using them as step stones, stepping stones. Um, Mr. Abid Ali Al-Wahid was um, a post-occupation phase case. He was arrested in a house raid, house raid by soldiers who were looking for his brother-in-law. Uh, his detention was reviewed by a deten uh, detention review committee, which held that he didn't pose a threat and he should be released. But he was still uh, detained for another month, about just over 30 days after, after that. Uh, and his, the defendant's own medical records showed that he, um, they noted several injuries on his, on his arrival at the detention facility. There was another, uh, there was supposed to be another uh, serious brain injury came which, uh, case which occurred during the occupation phase, but it um, settled shortly before trial. So that's why um, there's no occupation case in the trial. And then um, KSU and Amari, which were um, um, dealt with in the second round of trial in 2017, are both um, invasion cases as well. These, uh, there was a, a lot of challenges in bringing these, these cases. It is, uh, we had, you know, 
these with from clients living in Iraq and uh, speaking English, uh, not speaking any English. We we had uh, it was sometimes difficult to take to obtain instructions for claimants who are based in Iraq, uh, not least because because of the security uh, situation in Iraq, we couldn't go and meet them um, there. So we had a wonderful team of in-house Arabic-speaking paralegals and solicitors taking instructions over the phone. When we had to uh, meet them, um, we met them in third country. Uh, so that involved a, a lot of uh, also logistical difficulties. These, cli uh, these clients are were very vulnerable and often traumatized. Um, so we had to be very sensitive in the way we uh, interviewed them. And um, bringing the claimants and the witnesses in London was also difficult in that they were initially refused visas to come and give evidence. So Mr. Justice Leggett um, reserved a judicial review proceedings to, to review the reason why they, re they were refused a, a visa. And in the end, um, just before the beginning of the hearing, um, they were granted entry clearance to come and bring, proceed, uh, bring evidence, give their evidence in the, the judgment. So we, did, we made it in the end, and we went through trial, and in um, December 2017, Mr. Justice Leggett handed down uh, his judgment in favour of all four claimants, and he, find, he made some really strong findings regarding breaches of Article 3, Article 5, breaches of the Geneva Conventions, and also uh, breaches of Iraqi law, um, although a limitation applied. And um, so I'll just go through quickly through the key findings that he found on flaws on detention policies, which we've been uh, through with uh, Nick Mercer. About, um, he found that the MOD operated on a flawed system of detention review, which was based on a wrong uh, understanding of the Geneva Conventions. He also found in the post-occupation phase that the detention review process lacked the uh, institu institutional guarantees of impartiality and opportunity for participation, which had been found by the Supreme Court as being essential for, um, uh, in, any in any phases of the armed conflict. Uh, he also made some key findings of mistreatment of a, both a systemic and an individual nature. So with regard to systemic um, uh, treatment, um, Mr. Al-Saran, um, KSU and Amari all claimed that they had been uh, hooded during the transportation uh, to their camps. And... Um, who did was one of the five interrogation technique. It was already banned at the time, but it was uh, very much um, used uh, um, at the time. Um, and Mr. Justice Leggett found, uh, say, had said that he had to make it clear in unequivocal terms that putting sandbags over the heads of prisoners is a form of degrading treatment in breach of both Article 3 of the European Convention and also Article 13 of the Geneva Conventions. So now the MOG's uh, current doctrine prohibits hooding in all circumstances. And at the time of Mr. Al-Wahid's detention, so in 2007, it was prohibited, hooding was prohibited. Instead, detainees were made to wear black tack goggles and ear defenders so that they could neither hear nor um, see. And... Uh, Mr. Justice Leggett held that this practice was deliberately calculated as a means of dehumanizing the detainee 
and giving the captors a cloak of invisibility and therefore uh, depriving Mr. Al-Wahid of vision of, and hearing for longer periods and for improper reasons was a form of degrading treatment. He also uh, made some findings in relation of harshing, uh, which um, um, was alleged, um, Mr. Al-Wahid alleged that he had been subjected to harsh tactical questioning, which was a, an approved uh, interrogation technique at the time by the MOD, which involved uh, shouting and uh, deliberately insulting and abusing the detainee. It was abolished in 2012 and replaced with direct challenge, uh, but uh, uh, the judge held that it confirmed that uh, harsh, uh, and the harsh approach when conducting tactical questioning amounting to de degrading treatment. And finally, um, as an example, he also find, made some finding of individual breaches of, of uh, Article 3 in, um, um, in the case of Al-Saran and KSU and Al-Wahid, and uh, not KSU, sorry, uh, MRE and Al-Wahid. Uh, but just uh, in relation to um, Mr. Al-Saran, uh, the judge recognised that when assessing violations of Article 3 in the context of war, you really have to take account of uh, the, the, um, the context, really, and the, the acute stress and constant danger that soldiers would find themselves in. But this doesn't um, mean that you know, any violence is excusable. So assault involving gratuitous infliction of pain and humiliation, such as deliberately running over the backs of uh, detainees is, you know, clearly crossed the level of uh, severity for Article 3 and uh, constituted inhuman and degrading treatment. So, um, in conclusion, um, I just wanted to uh, kind of reiterate that Mr Justice Leggett's judgment is very, you know, very reasoned ruling, and it's a very welcome re response to the endless accusations um, that allegations of mistreatments by British troops are motivated by dishonest Iraqis and self-serving lawyers. Um, these findings are really important in the context of these claims and the very hostile um, environment in which they were litigated. The claimant's evidence was tested in court and was found by the judge to be credible. And that is very important. Um, also, I should also note that the judge found that the MOD was in breach not only of its obligations under the HRA, but also under the Geneva Conventions. And so what this case shows really is that the MOD's own policies and procedures about the treatment of the detainees and pr prisoners of war um, violated the Geneva Conventions during the, the Iraqi conflict. So in the case of these Iraqi claims, the HRA has provided a cause of action in English law uh, and has enabled victims of, of these breaches of Geneva Convention to obtain redress and, co and compensation. But it's also highlighted the institutional failures at the Ministry of Defence to prepare for the um, Iraq war and to ensure, ensure that soldiers went to war with proper training that was compliant with the Geneva Conventions. That's why our cases are against the Ministry of Defence, um, not the individual soldiers. Um, and finally, I should also note that um, the judge made breach findings of breaches of Iraqi law. So in the case of assault and unlawful detention, he found that they, were, they gave rise to liability in tort um, in accordance with the Iraqi Civil Code. 
in their, in their cases, they were uh, found to be out of time. But the judge made clear that had he not allowed the claims under the HRA to proceed, he would have used his discretion and allowed the claims in tort under Iraqi law um, as a matter of public policy. So even if the HRA is scrapped, like we hear uh, currently um, in... Uh, so it, because it's a very um, polarizing instrument, um, civil case and civil cases and criminal cases would still allow it to uh, to go ahead without the HRA, and uh, these types of cases would quite often would uh, represent a so, uh, could be claim uh, could be brought under tort law, and uh, so it wouldn't bring them to a total halt. Uh, that's it. I've over massively simplified uh, these issues, but um, I hope that gave you a brief um, understanding of the civilian litigation. Thank you very, very much for that overview of, um, and also for an insight into the, for those of you who are here from um, the BCL and other students, for an insight into the, the, the very real political climate that uh, Lee Day have been working under in pursuing these claims. I think that's a very important part of this story. And of course, this particular question um, has broader implications for the politics of human rights in this country, and I think it's worth exploring some of these questions in, in discussion. Um, I'm going to call upon DAPO to give us some uh, reflections. After seeing two perspectives from two sides of the practice-based um, conflict around the imposition of human rights in battlefield, we can now call upon the academic perspective to try and reconcile these questions at a higher level of... And let me give you a brief, Dapo. So the traditional thing when one is um, speaking at a conference is to start by thanking the organizers for inviting the speaker uh, to take part in, in the conference. I'm not sure whether in this case I can start by actually thanking Leora for uh, you know, coming to me 15 minutes before to say somebody's dropped out, can you, can you fill in? It, you know, one should always try to learn lessons from whatever happens in life. And the lesson that I have learned is don't come too early <laughs> to a conference. And certainly not one organized by Leora, because, or at least in which Leora is chairing, because you may be asked at the last minute <laughs> to, to fill in. Um, it's been fascinating actually hearing the two perspectives that have been given by people who've been involved in, in the sort of core face of it, first of all in the actual operations themselves and then in the, in the litigation. As Leora says, what I'll try to do is to provide a sort of academic perspective in relation to these issues. And I want to 
try to answer the question of where are we now, or at least give some thoughts in relation to the question, where are we now in relation to this question of the application of human rights law in, in armed conflict, and in particular in relation to two specific questions relating to the application of human rights law in, in armed conflict. So this litigation that you've been hearing about has thrown up two questions um, in relation to the application of human rights law. Question number one, a question which predated the, the Iraq war but has been intensified by this litigation, is the question of the extraterritorial application of, of human rights law. So to what extent does the convention and the Human Rights Act in this country, to what extent do those legal instruments apply extraterritorially? So that's question number one, and where are we now on that? following this litigation. Question number two is the question of to what, what is the relationship between human rights law and the law of armed conflict or international humanitarian law? How exactly do we conceptualize this relationship? Because in the descriptions that you've heard, and if you think about the, the summary of the findings from Mr. Justice Leggett at the end, he talks about breaches of the European Convention on Human Rights and he talks about, the, sorry, breaches of the Geneva Conventions. So what's the relationship between these two bodies of law and where are we now in terms of what answers have been provided by these cases that we've been talking about? So first question, extraterritorial application of the Human Rights Act and the Convention. Reverend Mercer talked about how from the very beginning he raised this issue. And the answer that uh, he was given at that time was sort of, don't worry about it, human rights law has nothing to, to, to say really. Um, and in part that was because of the Bankovic judgment of the European Court of Justice of the Grand Chamber. Um, and the decision that the, the European Court of Human Rights had reached then. Just to remind you, the essential question that arises here is to what extent are persons who are outside the territory of, in this case, the UK, to what extent are these persons within the jurisdiction of the UK for the purposes of the application of the convention? That's the question, right? So are these persons within the jurisdiction of the UK and our conception of jurisdiction has evolved over the years. And the first point, which had been already acknowledged before even this round of cases, is that in cases where a state exercises overall control of a territory, not its own, but outside of its own territory, then persons within that territory would be within the jurisdiction of of that country, so in this case, the UK. And that has been well, well accepted. The difficult question was whether there was another conception of jurisdiction, one which was not a sort of spatial conception of jurisdiction, but one which can be regarded as a personal conception of jurisdiction. If you exercise authority or control over an individual, does that automatically mean that that individual is within your jurisdiction for the purposes of the application of the convention? And that's the question that these cases have thrown up. First thing that, uh, I, I suppose the first sort of clear lesson that these cases have thrown up is the one that comes from al Skeni and the one that comes particularly from the Baha Musa incident, which is that whenever a person is detained by a state, 
then that person is within the jurisdiction of that state, and therefore the Convention and the Human Rights Act will apply to that person. The question that uh, has been difficult to answer is why is that so? Why is a person who is detained within the jurisdiction of a state? Is that because, as the UK asserted in Alskany, because the person is in a, a small space, a small area over which the state exercises control? So if you think about Bahamusa held in a small location, are we essentially saying that, yes, you don't have overall control of the whole territory, but you have overall control of that small space, and therefore this person is within your jurisdiction? Or is it because you have control over that individual? Now, if it's because you have control over that individual, then why would the convention not apply if, for example, you were to stop a person at a checkpoint and you were to commit certain acts in relation to the checkpoint. What about if you didn't stop the person at the checkpoint, but rather what you did was you frog-marched them for three miles, walking and abusing them as you went along, but never actually exercising control over any little bit of territory at any point in time? So that's the question. Why is it? Now, one of the um, interesting things, and I think in a sense, this might be where we were, are in relation to Alskany, is that Alskany in the European Court of Human Rights, the Grand Chamber of the European Court of Human Rights, for almost all of its judgment, seems to equate control of the person with jurisdiction. So if you control, if you exercise authority or control over the person, you have jurisdiction. In fact, in one place they talk about control and thus jurisdiction. And in fact, they specifically say, if you look at our cases, whereby we have held that a person that is detained is within the jurisdiction of the state, the reason for jurisdiction is not because of the control over the ship, the plane, the room in which they are held. So that's not the reason. It's not because you have control over that small territory. And that seems to suggest that jurisdiction is about personal, the exercise of personal authority or control. And that seems to suggest that if you have enough control over the person to be able to violate their rights, then you have enough control to say that the person is within your jurisdiction. That is the thrust of most of the judgment in the Alskany case, except for the last couple of paragraphs. If you then get to the last couple of paragraphs, I think Melanie put this up, the uh, Grand Chamber says, well, the UK was exercising public powers in Iraq. And it is for that reason that all these people were within the jurisdiction of the UK. Question, what does that mean, exercising public powers? What we know it does not mean is that it does not mean that they had overall control over the territory because the court had already rejected that. So we know that it's a lower test than exercising overall control over the territory. What we also know is that the UK was in occupation of Iraq as a matter of the law of, of, uh, of, of armed conflict, international humanitarian law, but that the court considered that not to, in itself, be equal to exercising overall control, something that's curious. So where are we left with? I think we're left in the European Court of Human Rights, 
almost essentially on, on the knife edge where the logic of the decision, the logic of the decision in Alskeni seems to suggest that jurisdiction equals personal control or authority, but the actual decision doesn't say this. Now, transferring this back to cases in the UK, this issue of where are we now with jurisdiction was explored in Al-Sadun. I don't know if you mentioned Al-Sadun, but in Al-Sadun, enter stage left Mr. Justice Leggett again, says, if I read Al-Skaini, the principles in Al-Skaini suggest to me that if you have enough control over the person's affairs to violate their rights, then that will give you enough control to say that they are within your jurisdiction. That was the decision of the High Court and, and of Mr. Justice Leggett in Al-Sadun. So you have this, if you like, jurisdiction equals authority or control, full stop. The Court of Appeal in Al-Sadun said, well, that sounds logical, and it's, if you read the judgment, it could well be that those are the principles, but the European Court of Human Rights has not gone that far yet, and therefore, we're not going to go that far yet. So we stick to what the court said in terms of the UK was exercising public powers. So we're still, in that first question, we're still essentially at a place where the jurisprudence can go either way. It can go either way. You can follow the logic of the decision in Alskeini all the way through to the end, and you say jurisdiction equals authority on control. And therefore, what that would mean if you take a right-to-life case, the fact that you kill the person means that they are under your control because you have enough control to take their life, and therefore, the right-to-life is engaged. That would be the logic of that. But neither the European Court of Human Rights nor the courts in this country have gone that far. But that case will, I don't know if it's one of the cases to come, but that case will come and that case will be tested. Um, and my view is that actually Mr. Justice Leggett will ultimately be proven to be correct on that question. Um, probably not in the courts in this country, I suspect. But I think in Strasbourg, it will be very difficult for the Strasbourg court to ignore the logic of the entire decision in, in Strasbourg. And also because any other basis really would be an arbitrary, it would be arbitrary line drawing. So that's that first question. The second question, um, I probably don't have enough time, but the second question, the relationship between human rights law and, and IHL, um, international humanitarian law, where are we now? So one of the questions that has arisen there is to what extent should we say that international humanitarian law is the lex specialis and therefore it essentially prevails over human rights law? That's one of the questions that has been raised. And um, that line of reasoning arguably finds some support in a statement that the International Court of Justice made in, in the Nuclear Weapons Advisory Opinion, where they refer to international humanitarian law as lex specialis. And so this terminology gets bandied around a lot. And in a lot of this litigation that we've been talking about, the first line of defense of the government in the early days, as I understood it, was essentially the same thing that was uh, said to, to Reverend Mercer. Um, you know, the idea that human rights law has nothing to do with, with armed conflict. It's all about the law of 
It's all about the law of armed conflict. It's all about IHL. But it all depends on what Lex Specialis means. And I would suggest that there are at least three different ways of con con conceptualizing Lex Specialis. Okay. So one way of looking at it is to say, if IHL is the Lex Specialis, it totally displaces human rights law. So human rights law has no role at all. It is just IHL. So this is the idea of total displacement. Well, that has been rejected by every single court in every single case where this argument has been made, whether in the UK or internationally. The idea that IHL displaces totally human rights law has been rejected. So then you have a second conception, which is one of partial displacement, which is to say, well, of course, human rights law continues to apply. But if it comes into conflict with the law of armed conflict, the law of armed conflict will prevail. So in that sense, Lex Specialis is doing the work of being an arbiter of, of conflict. That's what it's trying to do. Of course, it applies human rights law. But if it conflicts with IHL, IHL prevails. That's second conception. The third conception is one that you can call the principle of coordinated interpretation. I really dislike it when people in invent new phrases for talking about things, except that if I happen to think of a good phrase which is new, and even though it's describing something that other people have talked about, I think that's a good thing. Um, so it's like people talking about the principle of complementarity. But this is better. Principle of coordinated interpretation is better because it's more legally sound. So what does this say? What this says is that there are cases where you can use one body of law to interpret another body of law, right? So you use one body of law to interpret another body of law, and it's coordinated interpretation because you achieve the same result in the sense that the two obligations are the same, so they're coordinated, they're the same, but you're using one body to interpret the other. And it's this third conception of Lex Specialis that has essentially been adopted first by the ICJ, the International Court of Justice, then by the European Court of Human Rights in the Hassan case, and now by the UK courts, Sada Mohammed, and in this litigation that we've been talking about. So what does this principle say? It says that there are cases where we can interpret human rights law, having determined that human rights law applies there are cases where we can use IHL to interpret human rights law. And actually, arguably, there are cases where we can use human rights law as well to interpret IHL. So it could be a feedback loop. Okay. So in this specific context, what do we mean? In the context of detention, what the court, the European Court of Human Rights said in Hassan was that even though the European Convention on Human Rights does not on its face, Article 5 allow for detention on grounds of imperative reasons of security because IHL allows for it. In a circumstance of armed conflict, we can interpret Article 5 as also allowing for it, even though the convention. Now, I think in principle, the, I think the principle of coordinated interpretation is correct. But my view, actually, is that the European Court of Human Rights went too far in Hassan. And this is actually where the coordinated interpretation versus complementarity view makes a difference. Because it's a principle of interpretation. And the question is, how far does interpretation go? 
when you have a treaty that says there are only certain specified grounds for detention, can you read in another ground which is not specified? And does that remain interpretation? That's the difficulty here. But that's what the court has said, that we can use IHL to read in another ground which is not there. Note, this only applies in the context of an international armed conflict. So this is significant. Significant because in the context of this litigation, as you talk about the different phases, some of it will be an international armed conflict, but at some point it will become a non-international armed conflict, and therefore at some point questions will arise as to whether IHL actually, even IHL, does IHL even on its own authorize this detention? So that's, and that was explored in the Sardar Mohammed case. So that's the first point where we are. We can use IHL to interpret human rights law and in the context of detention, we can read in to Article 5 grounds for detention that exist under IHL. So that's, and then the second issue is the issue of procedures. Can we use IHL to interpret the procedures? And this is where the point, to sort of link the two presentations, the, point, the points, which I thought were very compelling, I have to say, that Reverend Mercer was making about the difficulties of engaging in procedural review in the context of an armed conflict. This is where it becomes relevant. Because yes, IHL does provide for certain grounds of review, but the standards that IHL provides for and the mechanisms that it provides for are much more relaxed than what the, the European Convention on Human Rights Law would ordinarily require. So the effect of Hassan, the effect of Sardar Mohammed is that actually the right standard to use in the context, again, of an international armed conflict, I stress, is you read in to Article 5, 5.4, the standards of the Geneva Conventions, the standards of international human, uh, humanitarian law. But this is where the kind of feedback loop comes up because it may well be that in thinking about what international humanitarian law itself provides for, even that might need to be infused with some notions of what human rights law provides for, um, at least in terms of basic notions of independence of the body, impartiality, opportunity to make representations, that sort of thing. So you may end up going in, in a sort of circular movement. So that's sort of where we are. Now, I, I note the criticisms that were made of Mr. Justice Leggett in terms of his findings on the facts. And I don't, you know, I'm not expressing a view as to whether I agree or I don't disagree. But the important point is that actually he tries to reach it by reference to whether or not these are breaches of the Geneva Conventions through this mechanism that I've been talking about. And I think that's the right way to go. So what's left in this area of the relationship between IHL and human rights law? The big question or, well, I think the big question that's left in the, in the particular context of detention is the question of what happens in a non-international armed conflict. All well and good to say, yes, you can make reference to IHL to interpret human rights law. IHL has quite a bit to say about detention in an international armed conflict. We have 
all of the Third Geneva Conventions, all of the Fourth Geneva Conventions. What if it's a non-international armed conflict? Afghanistan for most of the time, Iraq for much of the time. What do we do there? Because there, arguably, IHL has very little to say. Um, either on the question, in my view, of whether the detention is even authorized at all. That was the big issue litigated in one of the cases. Does IHL provide an authority to detain? And I think the Supreme, well, the Supreme Court didn't really give an answer, but the majority leaned towards the view that I think correctly that it does not, that IHL does not give an authority to detain. So if you say, yes, we can use IHL, but you turn to IHL and IHL has nothing, and the same is true of the questions of procedural guarantees, review. You turn to IHL, you say, yes, we can interpret the convention in the light of IHL, but IHL has nothing to say. Does that then mean that we are, shall we say, stuck with what the European Convention provides for? And I say stuck because of the points that were made earlier, that how do you apply those standards in the type of context that has just been described? How could you possibly apply those standards there? Or if IHL provides no authority to detain at all, does it mean every detention is ipso facto going to be a breach of the convention? Those are questions that are still unresolved, I think, in this um, question of the relationship between human rights and, and IHL. Yeah. So you've just proven me right, Dapo, that I can call upon you at 15 minutes before the uh, event. Now, we've run a bit over time, but we did start at 16 minutes past uh, 11, um, and we could suspend questions altogether or comments or discussion, or we could go on until quarter two. I think that's probably... Is that all right? Or should we suspend? Yes. Uh, yeah, so brief comments now, uh, questions, please. Um, and uh, if you could keep them as, as, as succinct as possible, um, uh, I'm going to choose two. One. Two. All right. All right, so there's a, there's a microphone coming down, um, and so I'm going to ask you just to wait for the microphone so we can... Thank you. Um, firstly, uh, just a question for Dasko, which is probably a bit unfair given that you've just done this impromptu presentation, but I'd be really interested to get your view on the principle of coordinated interpretation then applied by the Supreme Court in Sarah Mohammed and Al-Wahid in respect of UNSCRs and potentially then filling the gap where IHL doesn't um, allow during an IAC, um, give the authority for detention. Um, and your view as to, yeah, just a, on, on the way they dealt with that in terms of UNSCRs, which appear to be much more a political instrument than a, than a really established body um, of law. Um, and then a quick question for um, Nicholas Mercer as well. And again, having been a lawyer who's been representing the claimants, it's been, it was very interesting to get your perspective 
on uh, Mr Justice Leggett's findings on Article 5 and, and have that um, have that context and it, it sounds as if you think that he didn't apply the military context to his findings on Article 5 in the way that he did um, when, when looking at, at Article 3. Um, and I just wondered if you have any observations on uh, why the Ministry of Defence might have chosen not to apply for permission to appeal those findings. And, you know, that may have just been a, a, a litigation strategy as opposed to a military strategy. And, and again, as you've moved on from your previous role, um, whether you're aware whether it has actually changed its military doctrine as a result of that judgment or is doing what you say and you know, thinks he also got it wrong and is just going to plough on um, with, with the previous approach. Can we have the second question now and then we'll have the, the answers so we can... This is over here. I confess to being an anthropologist, not a lawyer, or, or in law. Um, and what it seems... To, and I also... Um, I do research on gender, so I'm sorry, Reverend Mercer, but I'm going to ask, and of course it concerns all the panel and all of us, is if the Ministry of Defence and the British military deploy women at the front line from now on, or have they in the past, then would the duty of care, or the duty of care to the military, the duty of care to the prisoner, would that have been different? Could it possibly be different in terms of what gender brings and what women bring to the battlefield? In light of um, Christine Lugard's, um, she World Bank, no, um, she's an economist, I think, and she said when she became head of World Bank or whatever, um, what was it, um, IMF, um, if women had been CEOs at the time of the banking crisis, would, would there be more women in post? Would we have, have less of a, a disaster? And I'm not saying that what you presented is a disaster, but the whole idea of duty, duty of care, of course, is two-way, three-way, four-way, whatever. Thank you. So we'll have... Um, should we... Um Nicholas Mercer, would you like to respond first, and then I'll yeah. ask Darpa to respond. Um, first of all, why did MOD choose not to appeal? Well, I don't know. I suspect they didn't want prisoner abuse being revisited in any court proceedings. I mean, I'm staggered by the lack of press coverage, given that the Daily Mail is sitting in the back of the High Court, hovering on every word, given that I'd been carved out particularly that there were no reporting restrictions on what I had to say. I found that very odd. Uh, and I think the fact that Justice Leggett found that on the balance of probabilities that abuse did take place, and that's the narrative they don't want you to hear. Uh, and this applied not only to the war fighting phase, but also to Al-Wahid in 2007. And don't tell me it didn't happen in the middle. So I think it would give credence to the claims, the submissions to the ICC, and also that something the press and not, well, don't want to report because it doesn't fit the public narrative. We all know what simplified narratives can do <coughs> politically, and I think they don't, didn't want to go there because of that. I think that's sad because I do think there's some fairly compelling arguments on the Article 5 points 
on detention and review, and I think that raises difficulties. I'm delighted, however, with the Article 3 findings. So I think, like all these things, they're a very strange complexion that can be thrown up for all the wrong reasons and give a distorted view. So that, that's my hunch on that. Uh, if women around the world, um, uh, my wife would believe so. Uh, what can I say? I, I think it's very difficult. I mean, we, it, my view is, well, I'm, I'm, I'm a bit old-fashioned, actually, on hand-to-hand -hand fighting. I must confess that it infuriates my very radical daughter uh, over dinner. Um, so I don't believe in women in hand-to-hand fighting. But if you're applying it very strictly, then you capture combatants, 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 combatants. I think once reduced to capture, uh, then there's still a combatant and equality reigns, but there are difficulties in terms of personal dignity and other things that might go with that. So for instance, we were very careful about stopping and searching and having a female policeman present to, to um, a military policeman for stop and search of women and all that the lack of dignity that that might expose us to and the possible claims. So we treated that as sensitively as we could. To give you some idea what it's like running a prisoner of war camp, 3,000 people going to the loo. Yeah, I mean, we, we even had latrines dug on, the, on the, the curtain of the Basra airfield, so we would have to walk out in the middle of the night to 12 berth loos. That was pretty civilized. So I can see real difficulties there that they're going to have to factor into prisoner of war doctrine uh, going forward. Um, lack of test, less testosterone in the military headquarters. No, sorry. Uh, there's an awful lot of lack of testosterone. No, there's an awful lot of testosterone in a war officer. If you've been seeing Paris Men of War, an excellent series on the television, you know, these people are trained to, 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 to fight and to kill. And, you know, we need them to do the last 100 metres of foreign policy. So I still have great support for the military and all that it's asked to do. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'll leave it there. Do you want to just quickly respond? We're probably pushing time now. Before, so, let me yeah. start with the women uh, running, running things. I, just uh, a factual observation, actually. So if uh, Nicholas Mercer had been serving in the British Armed Forces two years ago or three years ago in the same role that he had 16 years ago, his two most senior bosses would have been women. So the yeah. top two women in the British Army were actually uh, lawyers. So the most senior, I think she's still the most senior woman in the British Excuse Army, me. is the Director of Army Legal Services. And at the time, three years ago, the next most senior was actually the Director of Operational Law. The Head of Operational Law uh, was also a woman at the time who's since retired, I, I think. So just on, on that one, that, that's happening to some degree, at least in this corner of the world, the kind of legal corner. Question about um, coordinated interpretation and using UN Security Council resolutions as a way of providing authority to detain under human rights law. So my view is that that is, um, my view is that there's no problem with, with doing that. And actually this is again where the language of coordinated interpretation essentially comes in. So let's think about what it is that we're talking about. Article five um, of the convention essentially requires that you must have a legal basis for detention. That's what it requires. And what both the European Court of Human Rights have said, and also courts in this country have said, is that that legal basis need not come from domestic law. 
that legal basis can come from international law. And so if the legal basis can be provided for by the Geneva Conventions, then there seems to me to be no reason why it cannot come from another international law instrument, the UN Security Council resolution. Ultimately, of course, the UN Security Council resolution's legal basis finds its basis in the UN Charter. So if the Geneva Conventions can provide it, there's no reason why the UN Charter can't provide it. I see it, you know, once, I suppose one difficulty that one might say is how would, if one of the reasons to have a legal basis for detention is that so that people know that they, there's a legal basis to be detained, how would they know? But you would get that problem actually, whether you find it in the Geneva Convention or the Security Council Resolution or elsewhere. I'm going to bring us to a close um, and thank the speakers very, very much um, for a really, really fascinating panel. Very excited for after lunch, and I will last go lunch. Before I go, I would say that the, the basic principles and guidelines on the right against arbitrary detention that's been issued by the um, Working Group on Arbitrary Detention have quite interesting things to say about conditions of armed conflict, and they, I, you know, I would urge some, some of you to go and have a look at that as well. Thank you. Thank you.